Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As well as doing responsible things like exercise and making podcasts, one of the things that's helped me through this period has been beer. And you could get eight free beers delivered direct to your doorstep. All you need to do is go to beer52.com slash party. That's beer, the number five, the number two, dot com slash party. And cover just £5.95 for the postage. And you'll get eight globally sourced fresh craft beers delivered right to your doorstep. You don't even need to leave the house. Think of it as a kind of cabinet of eight great beers. Each month, Beer 52 send a case of craft beer from a different part of the world. Recent cases have included beer from the Alps, New Zealand, the USA, Ireland, Korea, and Germany. So if you're looking to stock up or just fancy trying something different, Beer 52's Craft Beer Discovery Club is for you. And if you do change your mind, you can pause or cancel your account at any time you like. Every case also includes the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a tasty snack. Just go to beer52.com slash party and get your first case of eight beers for £5.95. That's beer52.com slash party. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. I hope this episode finds you in a nice cool spot. I realise that the weather will be different around the world wherever you listen but at the moment in the UK we're going through a heat wave. Well parts of the UK are certainly where I am it is and uh, I feel a bit dizzy so hopefully you're sat somewhere nice and cool perhaps under a tree there's a gentle breeze you've got an ice lolly plenty of water and you're settling down to relax in style on a summer's day by listening to um, quite a long political interview, and it's long for a reason. It's because Seth Harris can really talk, and I mean, has phenomenal insight, but also, I'm obviously a sucker for it on this podcast, people with great voices, and he's got a great voice, and he's got so many stories to tell. Brilliant insight. Seth was Barack Obama's Deputy Secretary of Labour, served in Obama's cabinet, was Acting Secretary of Labour for a while, and help deal with the aftermath from the global financial crash. And he tells us here the lessons that he's learned from that experience that we should then be applying now to how we deal with uh, reawakening the economy and keeping money moving uh, after and, and obviously during the, the, the pandemic. So there's so much brilliant stuff in it, as well as some great personal insights about working with Barack Obama and Joe Biden, who he worked with uh, a lot closer. We also talk about the forthcoming election, about whether it will go ahead, um, about how far Trump will go to win, um, about the sorts of things Trump might say during the campaign. So there's some really brilliant stuff from experience and some really good foresight as well as insight. So this is a real classic. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I began by asking him, in the wake of the financial crash, what his immediate priorities were. Um, I think my immediate priority was trying to figure out if I could find somebody else to take my job because it was quite a, it was the worst economic downturn in, in the United States since the Great Depression. 
And uh, not all of the responsibility fell to the Labor Department, but a sizable share of responsibility fell to the Labor Department. I, I believe we pumped something like $85 billion through the Labor Department in the form of unemployment compensation and job training funding and, and other resources. And it was extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging. I actually have a little bit of sympathy for the folks in the Trump administration who were trying to deal with funneling gigantic sums of money out through uh, plumbing systems, through infrastructures that are really not built for dealing with that kind of volume, both the volume of people who are applying for the money, trying to lay hands on the money, and for the people who are distributing the money and trying to make sure that only the right people get the money. So it was a, it, I would say it was an extraordinarily exciting time, but not exciting in the sense of thrilling, like going to see Matt Ford perform stand-up comedy. <laughs> it was, it was exciting in the sense of you felt like you were in the middle of a historic moment and there was no guarantee that it was going to come out right. And so the decisions that certainly that the president was making and that Vice President Biden was making and the Congress, the Democratic majority in Congress was making were earth shatteringly important and could really determine whether or not we could recover from this horrible economic downturn. But it was also true that for folks like me who were making decisions about how to implement the decisions that those leaders were making could have had a seriously positive effect or a seriously negative effect. And not everything went right. Uh, you know, it, as is the way in human events, not everything went right. Um, and I, I, I got dressed down in front of uh, my colleagues more than once by Vice President Biden and by officials in the White House, and I got praised. And um, uh, but I had a fantastic team of people, and that really is what the success of these measures depend on. You know, go, what, one of the things that you've encountered because you've been close to politics for a long time, government is really hard. And leading in government is extraordinarily hard. Governments are generally the most regulated industries in any economy. And so getting these Goliathin institutions to produce the desired outcomes when they're subject to all kinds of rules, political pressures, press inquiries, constituent demands, stakeholder insistence on particular approaches, it's extraordinarily complicated stuff, and the only way to succeed is to have a team of really excellent people to work with who can help you to sort through all of those problems and keep your eye focused on how to produce the good outcomes. Not to be worried about how many paper clips you're bending and unbending during a day, but whether or not people are getting the unemployment benefits they need, their workplaces are safe and healthy, they're getting their the, the paychecks that they're entitled to, that they're... Uh, uh, retirement benefits and that their health care is, is insured. If you keep your eye on that ball and you have the right people helping you to do that, it can, it can, it can, not guaranteed, it can come out right. I hate to dwell on a, what might be a sort of personal embarrassment for you, but when, when you talk about getting personally dressed down by the vice president, I mean, what, how does that feel and, and how did he do it? Well, so well. Let me start by saying I'm a big fan and supporter of of Joe Biden, and uh, it was really a privilege to work with him. And I and I got to spend some time with him in other situations where, and, and if you like, I can tell some stories if you'd like. But <clears throat> you know, we, he he led the implementation of the the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act, which was the nine hundred billion dollar 
stimulus program that President Obama drove through Congress uh, that really saved capitalism in the United States, to be blunt about it, and much like the New Deal saved capitalism in the United States during the Great Depression. And <clears throat> President Obama, to his great credit, turned to the vice president and said, go make it work. And so we met with him uh, every month to talk about whatever were the issues that needed to be addressed. And, you know, one of the challenges in, in implementing a program like that is to ensure that when the money goes out, that the rules that apply that protect and benefit working people and communities, and particular categories of working people, are uh, conformed with, that, that, people, that you enforce them, that people comply with those requirements. And the consequence, though, of some of those requirements is that can slow the money down. It can keep the money from going out the door. So uh, he at times felt that I was not making sure that it was possible for the money to get out the door and making sure that the labor standards that I was responsible for, for leading my agency and enforcing were being complied with. And in my experience, at least with me and, and with others in those meetings, he was not a screamer yeller. He wasn't throwing uh, you know, his shoe at people. Um, he wasn't, he wouldn't make you stand up and recite the Pledge of Allegiance. He didn't try to humiliate people, but he impressed on you in powerful, emotional, sometimes heartbreaking terms, th how important it was that we get this stuff right and that we had to get it right. And I had this experience. This, I'll get to tell you one quick story that really shows you the heart of the guy uh, at least with respect to me. There are other stories that maybe tell it better, but this is my personal story. So we had a meeting and he had, he had given me a fairly stern talking to about a particular issue. Then the meeting was over and I was walking out and he was right behind me. And I, I turned to him and I said, and this happened to be true, I, I turned to him and I said, well, Mr. Vice President, I, um, I happened to be at your granddaughter's school the other day. My son had a soccer practice there and your granddaughter was practicing soccer on the field just before my son's team was going to take the field. And his granddaughter at the time had bright red flowing hair. You couldn't miss her. Um, and, and I, I said, well, she looked like she was pretty good. And he clamped onto my arm like a vice like grip on my arm. And for the next 15 or 20 minutes proceeded to tell me every athletic achievement of that granddaughter, his other grandchildren, his own children, you know, the, the love of that guy for his family, that he could pivot from this very serious business meeting where he had, you know, given me a talking to, um, you know, politely, but tough. And then we came out and I just made sort of a passing comment to him and he made it this personal connection where he's locked onto me physically. He's locked onto me in the conversation. At one point in the conversation, I was thinking to myself, doesn't this guy need to get back to work? But making that connection with me, which I think was his way of sort of making it up to me for what had happened in the meeting really was important to him. Uh, and I have from another meeting, uh, a picture of uh, uh, Vice President Biden and me together. And I look like I, I've, I've just been hit in the head with a baseball bat. I'm standing there holding my files, looking shell-shocked. And he's coming over to shake my hand. And in that moment, what he said to me was, it's not personal. We just have to get this right.
And that was really his approach is he, he doesn't humiliate people or embarrass people. And he doesn't yell at you for the reason, for the purpose of yelling at you or trying to humiliate you. His only goal was to make sure that the American people got what they needed in that moment. And part of my job was to do that. And I understood that. And I always took it in that spirit. And let me just say, there were plenty of opportunities where he just made me feel like a million bucks. And it was, it was that combination of things. He was very serious about government. He was very serious about the people he and I served. Um, but he also had these light moments. And, uh, and I can now recite all the uh, athletic statistics of his grandchildren to you if you'd like me to do that. <laughs> maybe, it's a, maybe it's a sort of bonus feature at the end. Um, so, <laughs> well, we'll put that on the DVD. <laughs> so with, I mean, as well as the, the sort of claustrophobic environment you sometimes find yourself in with these leading political figures, and you're a leading political figure, but with your senior figures and they're impressing upon you the importance of delivery, really, getting delivery through, making the policy real in terms of people's lives. How difficult, I mean, I, you know, obviously I'm predominantly aware of UK politics and it can be hard, for, you know, prime ministers here complain that number 10 Downing Street doesn't have the levers they often think it will, that they can say things, but making it happen is another matter. In America, it must be even harder with a federal system. I mean, in terms of the powers that were available to you, the things that you could do, how hard was it at a national government level then having to deal with states? You know, when you're trying to get stuff to individuals, you've got another layer of bureaucracy that we don't have here. It's, uh, it, it, as I said, it's extraordinarily complicated. And um, not everything the federal government does in the United States is done through the states. Sometimes it is done in partnership with states and cities and counties. Often it's done in partnership with private sector entities. It's done in partnership with stakeholders. Um, and so it's, it's immensely complicated. And then even within the federal government, you have overlapping jurisdiction between departments and agencies. You have um, congressional committees that are carefully reviewing everything that you do. You have the press watching everything that you do. You have people that you serve, your customers in the sense, the citizens of the country. Um, you know, we served at the time 140, between 140 and 150 million workers and many of their employers um, who are making claims on you. And that's one of the challenges of public sector leadership, of government leadership, is navigating all of those obstacles, all the barriers, all the, you know, seizing all the opportunities. Um, but that is just the nature of leadership in government. And, you know, the, the foolish people who don't understand how government works say one of two things, and that is, well, the prime minister said it or the president said it, and therefore we're going to do it. Well, that's a, the start, but it's certainly not the end. And the second thing is the people who say, well, we're going to run government like a business, you're not going to run government like a business. Government is not like a business. There are certain things that they have in common, but you know, government produces public goods and services. It's not about making profit. You know, making profit is a very easy metric for understanding whether you're being successful in the private sector. There are other metrics, but that's the principal metric in capitalism. If you don't know if you're making a profit, you, you don't know if you're succeeding. Government doesn't have a simple metric like that. So, for example, one of the agencies, actually two of the agencies inside the Labor Department, protect workers' safety and health. So the metric there is not making money. 
the metric there is trying to keep workers from being exposed to hazards that could make them sick or hurt them or kill them. And some of that was within our control. Some of that was not within our control, that my, my agencies didn't have jurisdiction over every workplace. Uh, we couldn't necessarily investigate in every workplace that we wanted to reach. It was very complicated to put new regulations in place. So that's just a small piece of what the Labor Department does. The Labor Department has 23 organizational units, a multi-billion dollar budget, and stakeholders, you know, in every part of the country and outside the country. It's, it's a big, complicated enterprise with 21,000 workers. It, it, it just is, it's hard to do. But that's why you can't just come in and say, oh, I'm going to run it like a business. You have to understand how government is different. You have to understand how to lead. And let me also say, and I say this with all love and respect, because I really admire public servants, government workers are different. You know, the people who are working in your health ministry, the people who are working in your foreign ministry, or your defense ministry, are people who are motivated in their careers in a very, very, very different way than people who go to make money, right? Who go to, in our country, may go to Wall Street or who go out and are entrepreneurs, not, not making a value judgment about it, but just they, they're motivated differently. They think differently. They want different things. They want their legacy to be different. And so interacting with those workers and motivating those workers and getting them to achieve and to produce what you need them to produce is an entirely different enterprise. And by the way, uh, is, I'm sure this is true in the British civil service. It's absolutely true in the, in, the, in the U.S. civil service. As their leader, I had no control over how much they were paid, what benefits they got, even what hours they worked. That was all set by law and policy. So the traditional levers, the kind of things that might cause you and me to be motivated, you know, somebody dangles a couple of bucks in front of us and we'll jump through a hoop, that can't work with government employees because that's not, first of all, it's not what motivates most of them. They, they want to be paid, but they're not in it for the money. But also that you don't have control over those levers of power. So it really requires a very sophisticated, thoughtful, nuanced approach to running these complicated organizations. That business analogy, so many politicians have said it at some point, and they, present, they tend to be a particular type of people with not a great deal of political experience and people who presume that government's going to be quite easy. And I think we just go in there, you knock some heads together, and then you, you work a few extra hours and it solves the problem. They tend not to understand how sprawling, how complex even local government is, let alone the government of the UK, let alone the, the government of, of, of America. And obviously, we have a president at the moment in the United States who says exactly those sorts of things, who try to apply, um, and some people who analyse business history say he's not particularly good at that, but try to apply effectively <laughs> business logic to government um, and has effectively failed. I mean, I, I just wonder with the aftermath of this pandem pandemic, when so much of the concern now is shifting more to the economic, and that's where policymakers are really starting to focus. What lessons did you learn from dealing with the aftermath of the financial crash that can help us in the aftermath of this crisis? Well, let me make two points before I answer that question. The first is that I, I would not um, demean the American business community that by suggesting that our current president is in any way the paradigm of American business expertise and management ability. Um, he was um, uh, 
idiosyncratic. Let's be polite and say that he was idiosyncratic as a businessman. And let's use air quotes when we say businessman. Um, and it was never a manager of anything. You know, his business was a family business and he was really a brander. And I think what we're learning is he's not even especially good at that. Um, um, I don't remember what the second point was. So let me go on to your, to your point. There, there, there are a lot of lessons, uh, from the great recession and from the, the recovery act and from how we responded the, and I think president Obama would be the first to say this and vice president Biden would say this as well. The recovery from the Great Recession was far too slow and far too weak. And there are a number of reasons for that. One of them was we did not pay an appropriate level of attention to the public sector. Uh, many, many, many public sector workers lost their jobs. <clears throat> we didn't spend the money to get them back into their jobs. And so that hurt the economy, but it also hurt communities. They were under-resourced in the provision of public goods and services that they needed, healthcare, policing, fire, um, uh, emergency medical, um, parks, libraries, education, all the things that government produces were under-resourced coming out of the Recovery Act, and, and it took a long time to replace those public sector workers. A second lesson, and this is going <clears throat> to be maybe a little shocking, is we definitely did not spend anywhere near enough money to spark the recovery. We spent $900 billion, which was the largest amount of money ever spent on a stimulus package, and it was probably less than half of what we truly needed to spend. Um, and in the current context, we are repeating that mistake. In the United States, our uh, COVID recovery spending to date by the federal government is about $3 trillion, which again, is a gigantic sum. That's a massive sum of money, more than triple what we spent during the Great Recession. And it's about half, maybe less than half of what we truly need to spend. And the reason that we need that spending is to spark growth in the economy. Government should be stimulating growth in the economy when we are in a recession. You know, John Maynard Keynes taught us that 90 years ago, and it is still true today. When you don't have enough demand in the economy from working people, from businesses, uh, from others, when you don't have enough export uh, business, you need government to step in and spend. And most importantly, to put that money in the pockets of people who will spend it right away. So unemployed workers, low-wage workers, people who are receiving food assistance, um, governments, local governments, state governments. You know, we did a study during the Recovery Act on the effect of unemployment insurance spending on the economy as a whole. And we found that for every dollar you gave to an unemployed worker, it produced $2 of economic growth. And the reason is very, very simple. They get the money and they immediately rush down to the grocery store to get groceries for their kids. They pay their landlord. They fill up uh, their, their tank with petrol. They spend, spend, spend. Unemployed workers actually spend more than they have. That's part of the problem is they spend down what little wealth they have if they have any. Um, that's one of the horrible lessons that came out of the Recovery Act was that African-American and Latinx families in the United States particularly lost an immense amount of wealth, and the wealth gap in the United States 
grew dramatically because those workers were not provided with enough economic support from their government when they needed it most, when they were unemployed, when they were underemployed, when they were not earning enough wages. So those are some of the lessons that we have. And, and, and let me just say, you know, people say history doesn't repeat itself. History is repeating itself right now in the United States. We hear Republican leaders talking about, oh, they've got to turn off the spending spigot and we need to let states declare bankruptcy and we don't want to spend any more. And, you know, Democrats have put forward a $3 trillion spending package, which is probably about right. I might do a little more than that, but I think that's probably about right. And they're spending it in the right way, putting it in the pockets of hungry people, unemployed people, state and local governments, small businesses. But we're, we're having the same stupid debate that we had last time, utterly uninformed by logic, evidence, insight, history. And I fear that the consequence is that the, that the recession that we're in right now or the economic downturn sort of writ large that we're in right now is going to last. And it could last for a good long time. And, and let's hope that a Democratic administration inherits that and that we don't have a Trump administration carrying it forward for another four years because I'm not sure our, our economy could recover from that. I don't think there's any doubt that the political context now is, is informed and the economic context by what happened you know, not that long ago it's after the financial crash. But Keynesian economics are, you know, fine in theory, but at the time they can be deeply unpopular. Trying to convince a public that actually what you need to do is borrow more when people have been through a period where the perception was in, in Britain and America that the state had gone too far, even though it was about the collapse of the subprime market, part of the political narrative was that, well, actually, you know, these left-wing governments, even though George W. Bush had been in charge in America, um, have spent too much, they've been too profligate, and now we need to... Certainly that was the narrative here in the UK. Now what we're saying is, correctly, actually we're not going to do what we did last time, we hope. What we're going to do, and you almost have to re-educate the public in, in terms of economics. So... In terms of how you manage, you know, you, you put that stimulus in now, but at some point you have to pay it back. Now, do you think with this crisis, government should say, well, we're just going to have to live with a high level of borrowing and explain to the public why that's okay? Or, as is inevitable, the temptation for politicians is to say, well, look, we're going to have to cut something. We're going to have to either cut taxes for ideological reasons, or we're going to have to take a little bit out of the public purse just to show that we're trying to do this in a balanced way. What is the most preferable way of dealing with the post-crisis economy? Well, I would just say austerity has been nothing short of catastrophic around the world. It, 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 it does two things simultaneously. It weakens the economy, and so you end up with very low levels of growth that persist, and it hurts the people you're supposed to be serving. Um, you know, if you're cutting food assistance, if you're cutting education, if you're cutting labor standards enforcement, if you're cutting retirement, if you're cutting health care, uh, although I know, goodness gracious, nobody would ever touch the NHS. I know that that's, that's sacred, I know, in Great Britain. So much so that it caused, you know, the argument about NHS was used to advance Brexit. Um, but if you're cutting all of those things that people rely on, not to mention, libraries and parks and public spaces and uh, public health, you're just hurting your citizens. 
you're causing damage to families, the people that you are supposed to be benefiting. And the idea that that spending is somehow a waste shows to me a moral corruption that's utterly unjustifiable. And it is simply false as a matter of elementary economics that's public spending is damaging to the economy, the opposite. It lifts the economy. Now, it shouldn't be the only thing in the economy, but you know, if I pay a postman an additional 10 or 15 or 20 pounds a week, that postman is going to spend that money in his or her community, and that's going to boost the private sector businesses in his or her community. So that's a very straightforward lesson. Austerity failed miserably in the United States. It failed in Britain. It failed in other parts of the world that tried it. Um, the answer is, in a crisis like this one, is to spend what you need to spend to keep the economy buoyed. And let, let me give you an example in the United States of sort of a tale of two governmental philosophies. So in the fiscal spending side, where Congress controls the spending, we're not spending enough. And we're seeing hunger rise. We're seeing rising rates of bankruptcy. We're seeing spreading unemployment, or at least maintained high levels of unemployment. Uh, we're seeing rising income inequality. All the bad things that you don't want to have happen because we're not spending enough. The Federal Reserve Bank, which worries about capital and debt markets, absolutely opened up the spending spigot and just let a tsunami of money wash over Wall Street and debt markets. So the, the stock markets are doing just great. The debt markets are doing just great. So why are we willing to just uh, print unlimited amounts of money, essentially, I mean, $3 trillion in direct spending, but they lowered interest rates. It's much more than that, many trillions more than that, that's gone to the wealthiest people in our society, the investor class in our society. And they've, got, they've been protected. But, you know, the, the low-wage working family that's worried about being evicted from their apartment, or maybe they were able to scrounge enough money together to buy a small house, and now they can't make their mortgage, they're going to lose their home, or the small business person whose entire wealth is in this business that they've, they and maybe their family before them built up, you know, farmers who have no place to sell their, their crops or their, their milk. Why is it that when we look at that second group of people that we don't say the same thing that we're willing to say about that first group of people, that saving you is a mission critical function for our government? It's, it's, to me, it is a measure of a moral corruption in our politics, a moral bankruptcy in our politics that values wealth over human beings. And that's the change that we need to bring. And let me say, and I, I, you hear people say this a lot in, in economic crises and other crises. In the United States, I think we're beginning to see that. I think the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement the concern about things like police violence against communities of color um, is, a, is a, 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 to me, a rising humanism among the American people that I think could really transform our politics. 
you know, we definitely saw that with Roosevelt during the, the Great Depression, although we did turn a few years later to McCarthyism, and obviously that was the opposite approach, a really hateful approach. But I'm beginning to get the sense that, that there's a real concern about communities and human beings and serving their interests and not using government as just a uh, basically a, a place where people can steal whatever they want to steal. And I have to say, you know, they, it's going to be hard to find in history, there will be very few things that will be good to say about Donald Trump. But the nakedness of his approach to government as a place where people come to make money, just the, the, the sheer obviousness of the way that he and his family and the people around them have approached it, I think has turned people against that kind of an approach and has turned them instead to a view that government exists to serve us. The big clamor in the U.S. now, and I think in, in Britain as well, more because of ineptitude maybe than corruption, the, the big demand is that government do more and better, not that government do less and be weaker. It's No one is clamoring for small government. We want government to keep us from being killed right now. And that is really, I think, the signal that we there's a better understanding of how government can and should help and what's per, what purpose it should be put to. So that's for during the crisis. After the crisis, when governments in Britain and America and around the world have borrowed all this money to get that money into people's pockets so that they spend. After the crisis, the politics changes and already people will start saying, well, you know, that's a high level of borrowing. We have to deal with it somehow. What do you think, well, what do you think should happen and what do you think will happen? Do you think governments like the United States and the United Kingdom will say, actually, we, we can live with a high level of borrowing for a, for a while. And that is, we'd rather service a high debt than, than go through austerity. Because at some point, the national debt will become politicized quite quickly. And people, even on the left, will say, well, we're spending more on debt than we are on schools. We need to get the deficit down. How do you balance those two, those two competing and, and not necessarily ne negative pressures? Right. The, yeah, the, it's an intriguing thing in the United States. Concern about the debt rises only when Democrats are in office. When Republicans are in office and give away $1.7 trillion in tax cuts overwhelmingly to the wealthiest people in our country, I didn't hear any Republicans bemoaning the size of the federal debt. And so to me, I'll be blunt, a lot of that carping is just hypocrisy. You know, th there probably is an argument that we want to manage debt. But the big concern about federal debt in the U.S. and Britain is that if there's too much of it, it causes interest rates to creep up. It makes borrowing for others in the society too expensive. There's literally zero evidence <laughs> that that is not only what is happening now in a crisis, but that happened over the last 10 years or the last 20 years. It just isn't true. It hasn't proven true. Now, there are other pressures on interest rates that are holding interest rates down. No question about that. We haven't seen the other thing that you worry about is hyperinflation, that you'll see a dramatic increase. We haven't seen that. So as long as those circumstances pertain, what we should be focusing on is restructuring our economies and empowering people in our economies 
so that they are able to produce equitable growth in our societies. So in the United States, and I would say that this is true in Britain as well, we need to focus on how we build unions. How do we ensure that workers have power and voice in the workplace, that workers are guaranteed a fair share of the growth that's going to come when we come out of the market, that we have strong social safety nets, yours is stronger than ours. Um, but so we make sure that people who drop out of the middle class are protected and are safe and have health care and can look forward to a retirement. Um, that we make sure that education is widely available, regardless of class, race, uh, gender, that we have universal education as well as universal health care and universal retirement. How do we do that? How do we make sure that commun minority communities, whatever they might be in our societies, in our society, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, have a fair share and have a fair voice in our society? You know, if you have equitable growth and you make sure that money flows to the people who are going to spend it, and you have a robust middle class, the growth will come and the economy will grow and your debt will shrink, right? So it's, it's not the instance of spending that causes the debt. It's the irresponsibility of not paying for things with the requisite level of taxation. And our taxes in the United States were just cut to a preposterously low level, and we favor capital over labor utterly irresponsibly and in a way that's bad for the economy. So if we make adjustments in that and make it more equitable so that capital is paying more, labor is maybe paying less, you know, we will, we will be able to get out from under this, this debt. You know, there, there's more than one way to reduce debt. Growth is a way to do it. More taxes on people who can afford to pay taxes is a way to do it. Um, and putting money in the pockets of people who will spend it so that your economy grows is a way to do it. Um, cutting food for poor children is the worst and most, to me, morally bankrupt way to do it. I, I, my view is that the people who vote to do that should have to go talk to those families and explain to those children and their parents why it is that, no, 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 we, we can't give you 10 or $15 a day for food. Now we're going to give you six. We can't afford 20 pounds for the week. We can only afford 10. If you can persuade those people that what you're doing is right, you got my vote. But I'm not going to hold my breath. We spoke about Joe Biden earlier. What about President Obama? So when he asks you to come into his government, were you expecting the call? Well, I, you know, I, I was and I wasn't. Um, and uh, I, so I had I, I signed on uh, with uh, President Obama's campaign when he was Senator Obama in January of 2007. One of my dearest friends in the community in which I lived was asked to be his policy director. And uh, he and I had been talking about it and plotting and strategizing. And and he got the job and he said, oh, I just got off the phone with Senator Obama. And let me tell you what we just agreed to do. I said, we? <laughs> I didn't agree. So I ended up. <laughs> being a labor policy advisor to the Obama campaign, and I chaired his uh, labor and also his disability policy committees. And then, you know, in the United States, unlike in Britain, <clears throat> we have this three and uh, two and a half or so month period called the transition, 
when the incoming party figures out how it's going to take over the government, because we don't have shadow ministers in the U.S. in the way that you do in Britain. Um, and also we have lots and lots and lots of jobs to fill at the top of the government, uh, a lot of what are called political positions in a way that you don't really in Britain, much smaller uh, political core in your government. Um, so I shifted over in August of 2008 to help to plan the transition. And then I worked in the transition and I led the transition in all of the labor agencies and in the transportation agencies. So I had an inkling once I was being, doing that kind of work that I was going to be asked to, to play a role in the government. I, you know, my, my wife very much wanted me to come back to, we, we lived in New Jersey at the time. I was teaching law in New York City. And she really, she loved living in New Jersey and really wanted me to come home. Um, but, you know, it's, I, I will say honestly, first of all, it was something I was excited to be able to do. But also when the President of the United States asks for your help, if the answer is anything other than yes, you really have to question what the definition of patriotism is. Um, so I was asked to be the, the Deputy Secretary of Labor, much to the chagrin, by the way, of the incoming Secretary of Labor. I was not her first pick. Um, I'm not even sure I was in her top five picks. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, but uh, yeah, it was very exciting and, uh, and I was delighted to do it. But at the same time, it was, I knew it was gonna be a tremendous challenge. Um, and the offer didn't come directly from President Obama, but it was made clear to me that the offer was coming from President Obama. Um, and I got to—I didn't spend as much time with him as I spent with the Vice President, but uh, he was a—he was a remarkable boss, uh, as inspirational a man as I've ever met in my life. Uh, a man who embodies some of the best things about our country. Um, he you know, rose up from uh, a single-parent family and and struggled through the battles that that too many Americans face with race in our country uh, and trying to figure out what his identity was uh, coming from a multiracial family. Um, and uh, obvious, just a brilliant, brilliant uh, human being who rose up on his own merits, you know, wasn't given to him by family wealth. It wasn't given to him by dint of position or class. It was, as as quintessentially an American story as we can have with all the international flavor that came with it. Um, and and I, in addition to that, you know, most, most people know him as a, just a wonderfully inspirational thinker uh, and speaker. And, uh, you know, you can actually watch him thinking while he speaks. You know, he's, he's, you can see him formulating what he's saying. It's not a rote presentation. But <clears throat> to me, the most remarkable thing about him was what a wonderful listener he was. He was an extraordinary listener. It's really a lesson in leadership. Um, uh, you know, I would go to meetings with him. I was blessed to be able to go to meetings with him on a number of occasions. And his ordinary method of operating, at least in the meetings that I attended, was that he would let almost everybody in the room speak first. And he would often call on people uh, if they hadn't spoken, and he would ask questions of you. But he would let the information come to him and let other people have their say. And then at the end, he would not only collect what others had said that he thought needed to be collected, but he would add his own thoughts and intersperse them in amongst others. So he was sort of gathering notes in his head, and sometimes he'd take little notes on a pad. But then he would synthesize it and bring it all together and come bring the meeting to a point. It was exceptional. 
and not the way we're accustomed to seeing politicians operate and not the way I've seen other politicians operate. He didn't feel he had to dominate the room. He knew who he was in the room, but he really felt that he could allow others to have their say. And let me just say, I'll tell you a quick story. It didn't always inure to my benefit when he did that. <laughs> I, uh, <clears throat> I was attending... My, 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 my boss at the time didn't really love going to meetings in the White House. So there was a meeting that had been called to talk about reorganizing the executive branch. And I knew, I, I, and she asked me to go and I agreed to go. And I, uh, I knew that this was not going to be a productive meeting. It was not going to be a meeting that really mattered. It was, it was a meeting that the White House was holding so that they could say that they had held the meeting and had talked about this subject. So I went to the meeting, and, and we met in the Roosevelt Room, which has a very, very long oval table, the president's chair, which is slightly taller than everybody else's chair in the room, so you know it's the president's chair, and you don't sit in it. Mm-hmm. That's right in the middle of the table, which I very much like. It means that he can see everybody, and it's a little more egalitarian, not the head of the table. But I sort of took a position, you know, it's an oval table, so it didn't have a corner, but I got as much of a corner seat as I could, and I was sort of pulled back a little bit from the table. And this was just as boring a meeting as you could want to go to. And he's in the room, and people are blabbering. And and I think, you know, they, maybe they didn't realize that the meeting really was just to have the meeting. So I was sitting there, and I was not paying attention. I was sort of, I don't know, fantasizing about an old girlfriend, or I don't know what I was thinking about. And uh, at some point in the meeting, because I was lost in my reveries, I didn't even know what point, he said, uh, Seth, what's, uh, what's your take on this? So to hear that from out of the fog, and, and I was, so I scrambled some blather out of my, oh, some man. utterly, I mean, I'm, I couldn't, it wasn't even, it, I'm not sure it was English, let's be blunt. I'm not sure I was, it might have been speaking in tongue. It was just, I, I didn't have formulated thoughts, I wasn't prepared in the way that you would be if you knew you were going to be called on. And one of his practices was when he came into the room, he would walk around and shake everybody's hand. And then he would do the same thing when he ended the meeting, usually, unless he had to rush out. So he was coming around and shaking everybody's hand. And he grabbed my hand and he pulled me close and he said, I caught you napping, didn't I? <laughs> Oh, that was a real, that's not the kind of meeting where you rush home and call your mom. Hey mom, I was just in the White House. <laughs> Oh, I mean, of all the people <laughs> to have drifted off. I mean, it, it sort of begs the question why, if it was such a kind of pointless meeting, why was the president wasting his time in there himself? Well, because we, I think the logic of it was that, you know, th- there was a big push on Capitol Hill among the Republicans to reorganize the government. It consolidated. There's always these wacky schemes oh, we're going to consolidate these two agencies and we're going to put this inside that and then we're going to move it, you know, all in the alleged interest of efficiency. So in an effort to bat down some of those proposals, we came up with our own proposal. And, you know, you can't just throw a proposal out there and then ignore it because then people won't think you're taking it seriously. So I think the logic of the meeting was if the president calls and attends a meeting and everybody from all the agencies shows up and we're talking about this proposal that we're making, it shows the seriousness with which we're approaching it. Now, when, you're, when you've been in politics as long as I have, you read between the lines of that and say, I get it. I am just there to fill space. And I'm, I, you know, as somebody who is not, you can tell probably because we're looking at each other on camera, I'm not slight 
I add a lot of body volume to whatever meeting I'm in. I let a lot of weight, not intellectual weight, but physical weight to the meeting. So I knew that was my job was to sit there and participate. And, but, um, you know, after a while, particularly if you're working hard, it's kind of hard to keep maintain your focus in a meeting like that. Even if Barack Obama is in the room, with all apologies, Mr. President, I'm sure you're going to be listening to this. With all apologies, I wasn't paying attention and you got me. You got me. So I'll get you, but... <laughs> well, when he comes on the show, I'll, I'll, I'll remind him of it and then lambast him and um, get an apology out of him. I hope for his sake that it's a much more salient memory for me than it is for him. <laughs> I'm guessing he had more than a few of those kinds of experiences yeah, with that, people. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Um, you alluded to your... Um Secretary of Labour, who you served alongside for a while, uh, and it sort of alluded to a relationship that perhaps wasn't entirely pos- positive. Is that Hilda Sulis? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Secretary Solis was uh, one, she's been one of, I think I've worked for five or six secretaries of labour. Um, and I, I don't want to, I don't want to make, make it sound too negative. We work together just fine. Uh, she and I, she said right at the beginning of our working together that she and I shared values, which was absolutely true. We wanted to accomplish the same things. And we, we worked out a, uh, a distribution of responsibility. Uh, I was the inside person. I managed the department. I dealt with the other agencies. And she was the outside person. She dealt with Congress. She dealt with uh, the leadership in the White House. She dealt with stakeholder groups. Uh, and she was beloved. Um, she'd been a five-term member of Congress, um, particularly in certain stakeholder groups, she was very well respected and liked uh, the labor movement, the Latino Latinx community. Um, so I, I, I don't want to, you know, I, I don't want to portray it as being a that we were screaming and yelling at each other all the time. It wasn't that kind of a relationship, and we worked it out. And she was a professional, and and it, it ended up being uh, just fine, uh, even if I uh, uh, wouldn't have made it into the first bus of her choices to be her deputy. <laughs> Because it can be difficult in departments, you know, you see it all around the world where leaders appoint a, a secretary of state or head of a department, they appoint a team underneath them. And sometimes that's not necessarily the team that the, the secretary of state or the, the head of department would have chosen. And managing those difficulties that sometimes are political, sometimes are personal is, is key. Uh, I mean, would Obama have been aware that perhaps you wouldn't have been on the first bus, as you put it? Um, or, or was that would he not have got involved in that sort of level of detail? So I don't know what he knew, but but people in the White House who are making these decisions and helping him to make the decision certainly knew. But they also knew me because I had worked for the worked on the campaign. I've been a volunteer on the campaign, and I had dealt with a lot of them during the course of the campaign. And I had I had written a lot of his labor policy. And so the, the message that I got was, well, you wrote all this stuff, now you gotta go do it. Um, and also uh, my friends in the labor movement were very strongly supportive of me. They knew, some, they knew me to be an ally. I had worked in the labor movement early in my career. I had been 
closely allied with a lot of them on a lot of issues. And they knew that I was somebody that they could come to and get the help they needed, that I would be supportive of them, that I would try to advance the issues that they were interested in, as Secretary Solis was. So they, the, the philosophy of the Obama uh, staffing in the early year, uh, the early part of the first year when we were trying to implement the, the Recovery Act and we were facing this economic disaster was that they needed to have experienced, knowledgeable people in the number two position, sometimes the number three and four position, um, because they had to hit the ground running. They had to succeed. And they couldn't have people who were trying to figure out what the jobs were. They had to have people who knew what the jobs were and could start doing them immediately. So that was why they chose me. I had worked in the Labor Department under the Clinton administration. Um, I, was, I had not been the deputy secretary, but I'd worked very closely with several deputy secretaries of labor. I'd been counselor to Secretary of Labor Alexis Herman uh, in the latter half of the uh, Clinton administration. So I had seen everything in the leadership. I had worked directly with the first deputy secretary of labor as well as Secretary Bob Reich. So they knew I really knew the place and I knew what they knew I knew what Obama wanted to accomplish and that I could take, you know, in, in a presidential campaign, you don't really lay out an answer to every question. So they knew that while I knew what Obama would say about the first 10 questions, they knew that I could take my understanding of him and his policies and his philosophy and apply it to the next 40 questions that I was going to face. And I did try to do that. And how much connection do you have to the White House? Um, it sounds like it was predominantly <clears throat> through Joe Biden rather than, than Barack Obama. But when you're a head of department or deputy head of department, how regular is the contact with the center? I think it depends on which cabinet secretary you are. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the defense secretary, uh, like your defense minister, the, uh, the secretary of state, the attorney general, um, maybe the department, the secretary of Homeland security. I think they're in very frequent contact with the president, the president's chief of staff, and it, depending upon what role the vice president plays with the vice president, um, and also with other senior leaders in the white house. Uh, the labor secretary a little bit less frequently, I think, but, you know, the secretary was invited to meetings with the president often. I was in, you know, I don't want to suggest that I was only working with Joe Biden. I was in several dozen meetings with President Obama, maybe a couple of dozen meetings at least, um, <clears throat> on a variety of subjects, both when I was deputy secretary and then I became acting secretary for about six months. Um, but it's it's somewhat less. Most of the interaction is done at the staff level, sort of senior staff of the White House working with assistant secretaries and deputy secretaries, sort of the second and third tier of uh, the departments. And also even below that, the staff are talking all the time. So there's much, much more frequent contact there. Um, so it, it varies a good bit. Um, and also it depends upon the personal relationship between the president or the vice president and the member of the cabinet. Um, so uh, President Obama and, and President, uh, uh, Vice President Biden were, had good, relate, very close relationships with the Secretary of Agriculture, and I think spoke with him more frequently than maybe they spoke with Secretary Solis. Um, but it's largely a function of how deeply involved does the president have to be in the policy area. So when it comes to defense, when it comes to foreign policy, when it comes to justice issues, uh, you know, in, in the Obama administration, health, 
you know, because of the passage of the Affordable Care Act, which some people call Obamacare. He was very deeply involved with Secretary Sebelius at the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, so there, I think it's, it, it is a function of the job and what role the president is playing. And what, I mean, you, you worked on two transition teams, the Clinton-Gore and then Obama-Biden. <clears throat> and just, just give us an idea of that. You, you gave us a flavor of it earlier, but when you're on that transition team, when you've got a president-elect, but you have the previous incumbent is still there, are you then talking to, effectively now, if, if Biden wins, will he have to deal with, with, the, with his transition team, have to deal with Trump's people? And do you physically go to the White House and can you, can you start looking at documents and files or is it a more remote process than that? Well, I'll tell you what's supposed to happen and what normally happens, and okay. then I'll predict what's going to happen <laughs> coming if, if there is a Biden-Trump transition. Um, in the, the transition from George H.W. Bush, the first President Bush, to Bill Clinton, <clears throat> there was very, very close interaction between the Clinton-Gore transition team and the, the bush Quayle. Uh, White House and the Bush Quail agencies. Um, the answer is yes. The transition team works closely with the White House. They work closely with the agencies. The idea is to share as much information as you can. You know, there's a little bit of hesitance about it, but you know, in a responsible, it professionally run government, as certainly both Bush administrations were, there's an understanding that there's an obligation to share the information. And this is, this is also the approach. Let me just say that the Clinton folks took with Bush and that the Obama folks took with Trump. And that is, we sign a memorandum of understanding and we're going to share as much as we can. They don't, the transition team doesn't govern. They don't make any decisions. And there may, you know, only certain people have the requisite clearances to see the most sensitive material. But as a general matter, you go in, you talk to people, you figure out what's, what the lay of the land is, what issues are coming up, you understand what's going on from a budget perspective, what's going on from a personnel perspective, and you move forward from there. So in the two transitions that I've been involved in before, um, they, it worked extremely well, and, and both sides were utterly professional. Okay, when you hear the phrase utterly professional, <laughs> and you think about the current administration, um, an alarm bell goes off in your head. Because I think the expectation is that the, the Trump-Pence folks are not going to take the same kind of public, interested, professional, responsible approach to a Biden transition team. They may, and I think it'll depend in part upon who it is that plays the leadership role. So, for example, if Vice President Pence is put in charge... I would expect it to be a professional operation because he's been in government. He's been a governor. He's gone through transitions on both sides. Um, and I think he's somebody who genuinely respects the role of government. And yeah, I disagree with him philosophically on just about everything. And, and I'm not a big fan of the fact that he joined the Trump administration, but I think he does have the right outlook on government that you could have a professional transition. Uh, it's possible that someone else without naming any names could be put in charge and you could end up with the kind of transition that we have in the Trump presidency, sort of a uh, blame laying, finger pointing, uh, bombastic, uh, media focused, brand oriented 
obstructive, uh, obstructive, destructive, uh, withholding uh, uh, transition effort. I hope that's not what happens. And it's certainly what you don't want to see happen if you're still in the midst of a crisis. And I think the the odds are overwhelming that we're still going to be in a in an economic we're going to be in serious economic trouble. And COVID nineteen will still be in our country in law, and we'll still have large numbers of cases. You would hope that they wouldn't take that approach, but you know, I, I, people take their signals from the top, and it'll depend upon whether or not Donald Trump is able to put his own interests aside and really think of the country and think of what's right. I, we haven't seen a lot of evidence of that, but, you know, I, I'm enough of an optimist to believe that we shouldn't shut down the possibility. And did I qualify that enough, Matt? Should I, am I being too optimistic? Tell me if I'm being Pollyannish. Well, no, I, I think you have reason to be optimistic for, you know, and I think particularly given the crisis and the way it's been handled, I, th- I think it's, it has changed the metrics a little bit of the likelihood of a, of a Biden victory. But, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're a, you're a sober analyst of these things. When you try and dispassionately, given the shock that, that the Trump election caused, as well as Brexit and other things we've seen around the world that took people by surprise in countries like ours, do you think a Biden victory is, is likely? Well, so, you know, those of us who lived through 2016 (laughs) um, should be and are hesitant to be optimistic Um, because back in June of 2016, Hillary Clinton, there were polls that showed Hillary Clinton by head as much as 12, Mm. uh, 12 points in in, in the uh, national political polling. Um, and the current polling shows that Vice President Biden is leading. Um, the average is somewhere around nine or ten percent. The most recent poll from the New York Times showed fourteen percent. There are other polls showing double-digit leads. You know, so you have to forgive us for not, you know, putting the champagne on ice just yet, because you know, in uh, things happen. And there's a long way to go. There's four and a half months to go. If you had told people that four and a half months ago, you say to the end of January, that we wouldn't, not only would we not be willing to shake hands and hug or go out for a cup of tea together, but that we wouldn't be willing to be in a room and we'd look suspiciously at one another as we walk down the street, and that there would be massive protests against police violence against communities of color, and that the polling numbers for Black Lives Matter would be the highest they have ever been in the existence of that movement, people would have laughed in your face. So we got a long way to go. I am cautiously hopeful (laughs) that Vice President Biden is going to win. You know, in the United States, different from Britain, um, our elections are not really national elections. They're a series of state-by-state elections where only a small number of states really make the difference. Um, right now, Vice President Biden is leading in the six states that, that all of which President Trump won in 2016 and that he has to win four of in order to win re-election. Vice President Biden needs to win three of those six states in order to be elected president. 
And then there are probably three or four more states nearby that list where the polling is essentially even. States like Ohio, where Republicans should not be in trouble, but President Trump is in trouble. Iowa, uh, Florida. Um, if, if a battle is being fought in those states, President Trump is going to lose on a landslide and the Democrats will win the Senate as well, which is equally important because, you know, if Mitch McConnell is leading the Senate, very little will get done. But uh, so I, I, the polling now gives you reason for cautious hopefulness. I'm not even ready to say optimism. Hopefulness <laughs> is a little more ethereal. So I'm willing to say that. But I think he can win. And um, ironically, it's turned out that maybe the best thing that has happened to the Democrats is that people are getting to see Donald Trump in all of his glory. And uh, Americans are deciding that they really don't like it very much. You know, they, they, you know, he was supposed to be this take charge businessman type who was tough and could, and he really cowered in fear in the face of this pandemic. He showed himself to be weak and incapable of making even elementary decisions to, to benefit the country. Um, he showed a fascistic side, an autocratic side around the protesters. In it, you know, and when the sympathies of the American people are very clearly with the protesters and they clearly think that there's something wrong in the way that that police and others in our society treat African-Americans and other people of color. And he, he, he's shown a complete lack of understanding of what's going on in this moment. Ironically, he, he sort of captured a moment in 2016 where there was a backlash against uh, the uh, the Obama presidency and a backlash against feminism as well. And sadly, Secretary Clinton suffered the consequence of that and the country suffered the consequence of that. But that moment has long passed. And the big question for Trump is, can he pivot? If he's such a branding genius, if he's such a marketing guru, uh, which is how he portrays himself to the world, can he develop a different approach that communicates to the American people who are deeply skeptical, even hostile to him now, that he's capable of leading us in a different direction and being a different person? The evidence right now is that he's just doubling and tripling down, that he's using the old tricks and they're not working. Uh, the old tricks actually, the, 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 for example, holding packed rallies. So people are not so packed rallies, actually. Nobody seems to be showing up to some of his rallies. But um, people really question his judgment and why he would put people at risk for his own benefit. And that's what's been exposed. So, you know, we'll see how things develop. And no one knows where we're going to be. You know, there could be a miracle cure and our economy could could rise dramatically and everybody could have a, you know, a chicken in every pot and who know who knows what it is that will take the American cause the American people to turn around. Um, but the old tricks are not working. And uh, I think, I think I'm really gen where I am optimistic is I think the American people are in a different place. Now the attitude of the American people is really quite different. Now they, you know, they, they let their, their, the evil side of their id out of the box and then they got to look at it and they didn't like it very much. So now we're going to have to see where that takes us. And I'm hoping it'll take us in a humanitarian, communitarian approach, a more open, loving, caring approach to our country and to the people around us. 
um, and a view that, you know, it's, it's not just the least of these who should benefit, but all of us should benefit really from our government and from our society. And um, so I'm, I'm optimistic about that. We know what Trump's weaknesses are. They're, they've been visible and they've been brought into sharp focus, particularly by this crisis. What do you think Joe Biden's weaknesses are? Um, I, I think that's a fair question. I, um, you know, I, I'll be honest that I don't spend a lot of time thinking about uh, the vice <laughs> president's weaknesses. <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of impressed by his, uh, by more by sort of who he is as a man. You know, the, he, he has a, he, I'll be honest that he has a weakness for his family. But to me, that's sort of a humble brag because, uh, you know, I, loving your family to me is the foundation of being able to love other people. Um, but he really cares about his family and he's got, he, he, he's got a gigantic heart. I, I think he really, it's not, you know, a lot of politicians are good at faking sincerity. <laughs> he doesn't fake it. That's really him. And, you know, I've seen that so much. Um, I, I, you know, and I've dealt with him privately, not just in his public space, not just when he was vice president, but in the course of this campaign, I've had an opportunity to speak with him a number of times. Uh, and the Joe Biden that I see is not the Joe Biden that you see on a debate stage or the Joe Biden you see in an interview, you know, because when he's talking to me, he's much or and usually it's in a group and he's much more free, free flowing and he says what he needs to say. And it's, it, you know, people sort of think, you know, maybe he's lost a step and he really isn't as strong as he once was. Boy, the Joe Biden on those calls is sharp and smart and tough and not afraid to, uh, to, to say what he wants and to communicate clearly what he wants. Um, uh, I, I, I might want him to, uh, and he's done this, but I, I might want him to kick a couple of people who are around him in the butt a little bit harder. But um, I think maybe some of them would say the same thing about me. Uh, so um, I think that's, you know, he's, he, uh, I, I think he's filled with a spirit of generosity. Um, I want him to, uh, uh, I want him to rip the opposing side's throat out with his teeth, but I just don't think that's who he is. Um, and while I admit that would be satisfying for me, it may not be the way to win. I mean, he's gotten himself where he is today by not being that way. Um, we'll have to see. And can you see yourself working with him again? Do you think, you know, would this be another president's transition team you'd, you'd be a part of or, or another president's cabinet? Well, so I'm, I'm certainly going to be willing to help with the transition because I do have this little, very idiosyncratic, uh, specialized, stylized piece of knowledge because I've been involved not just in two transition teams, but in multiple transition planning operations where there never was a transition team where we just <laughs> ended up losing. Um, so I know, I know a good bit about it. So I want to share my knowledge and help where I can. So if they ask me to do that, I will absolutely offer whatever help I can. I'm not gunning to get into the administration. Um, you know, I've done it before. I, um, there are a lot of good people out there. Um, I don't, I don't have such a high opinion of myself that I am the indispensable man. And oh my goodness, what if Seth Harris doesn't join workers are screwed. That's not the case. There's plenty of terrific people out there, but I'll also say this. And, and I, I, I alluded to it before. If the president of the United States asks you to do something, you got to have a really deeply compelling reason to say anything other than yes. Um, and, I'm, I'm working on generating some really compelling reasons, but you know, my, my kids are college age. 
my wife has lived through a lot and, uh, you know, and it wouldn't be a big shock to her. Um, you know, I, I, I'm not so enamored of money that I have to stay out so that I can, you know, have caviar for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, Just breakfast. I would, I would like to visit London more. Um, but, but I, I am, uh, I'm enough of a patriot that if the president asks, but this time I think I'm going to make the president ask me. But, I, uh, but, but let me say also, if he doesn't ask, and I'm not gunning for it, I'm not asking him to ask, I'm not going to campaign for it, I'm not going to push for it. And if he doesn't ask, I think it'll be just fine, and I'm, I'll be happy, and I'll go on and live my life, and I'll help him in whatever way I can from the outside, because his success is our country's success, and also the progressive, uh, the, you know, the, the progressive um, missions success of our country. And I, so I, I, I want to be able to help him with that. So you can do that from the outside as well as from the inside. There's something very exciting about a presidential election, the, the TV debates. I mean, let's see what happens in terms of the pandemic and whether that affects whether people can vote or not and all those things. But, you know, the, the drama and the theatre of a presidential campaign. And I guess what I was getting at by talking about Joe Biden's weaknesses are what are the things that Trump's going to attack him for in those debates? What- oh, it's a, yeah, but there's the relationship between what Trump will attack and what's true are there's no and just as much of what the president does as president trump does is not really connected to reality uh so they'll attack him they'll argue that he's too close to china meanwhile we just heard that president trump was on the phone with president xi begging him to help him get reelected by buying agricultural products because he's worried about his position in the farm belt of the united states in the farm states in the united states he'll attack uh, his son for alleged corruption uh, in, associated with the Ukraine. This is what got the president impeached by the House of Representatives. It's not true, and it's, you know, it's stacking up anybody else's corruption next to the corruption in the Trump administration would be putting a thimble versus a Wembley Stadium filled with uh, hay. I mean, it's, it's not even close. He'll say that he's addle-brained and has dementia, you know, and meanwhile, there are pictures of Donald Trump barely able to walk down a ramp at the West Point. Donald Trump, you know, like I'm doing right now, unable to come up with a word. He has aphasia. <laughs> he, he, he has trouble pronouncing words. He can't sustain a thought. Um, you know, it's, it's two guys in their 70s. I, I don't think we expect them to be able to be like 30-year-olds. But, um, you know, they'll, and he'll, he'll call him a radical leftist, which just causes uh, untold laughter in my household. My, you know, I, I have a child who is an adult child who's a genuine leftist. And, uh, you know, he hears Joe Biden call the radical leftist and he just, he, he guffaws involuntarily. It's foolish. You know, Joe Biden has been a center left politician his whole career. He's not for abolishing the police, you know, as they're accusing him. He's not a socialist. You know, there are we have a few socialists in the Democratic Party. They're democratic socialists, which means they're not real socialists. Um, they're just big liberals, sort of lefty liberals. Um, people who in the old days wouldn't have even been welcomed into your Labor Party, let me just say. They would have been the right wing of your old Labor Party. Um, so not the new Labor, but the old Labor. Um, so I, so I, those kinds of attacks are that, – that's one of the problems that Trump is having is – there's not a lot to attack. You know, you can disagree. Really what the fight should be about is policy. Um, 
But what policy is he going to attack on, you know, that he's done a better job with the pandemic, that he's done a better job with the economy, that he's done a better job with workers, that he's done a better job with women, that he's done a better job with the LGBTQ community, uh, uh, you know, that he's done a better job with trade. I, I mean, it's he's really kind of stuck because his record is really quite abysmal. And and the the emperor has no clothes and people are beginning to see that. So. Um, all those attacks will come. And, you know, if there is one weakness that, that, that Joe Biden has is he's prone to the gaffe. He will sometimes say things that he shouldn't say, and he'll end up apologizing for them. And every gaffe that Vice President Biden makes will become headline news on Fox News, you know, which is our Murdoch-owned, British-inflected, tabloid-driven uh, news channel, and I say news with all dripping sarcasm. And uh, he, uh, so that, you know, they'll try and do it that way. Uh, but but I don't think that's going to work this time. When you're in the middle of a pandemic and people are losing their lives, more than 120,000 Americans have lost their lives in this pandemic. We are likely to get over 150,000 and maybe as high as 200,000. We're the worst in the world with infections, with hospitalizations, with deaths, with the destruction of small businesses. You know, we're, we have the highest level of unemployment we've had since the Great Depression. We, people are hungry. People are literally starving. I, I don't think Joe Biden saying something he shouldn't say, unless it's horribly egregious, which I don't think he's capable of, is not going to be what determines people's vote. I think people are sort of sick and tired of being sick and tired, and they'd really like to move on. And, and I think they see Joe Biden as the way to do that. One thing Trump might... Let me just say, it's very important that you run this before the election, because if Joe oh, Biden loses, good <laughs> Lord, am I going to look silly? Oh, this will be out tomorrow, so don't worry. This, will, this, is, Excellent. this, this goes out fresh. Um, Excellent. Uh, and this, the history don't replay podcast. it. Don't replay it, and you've got to pull it down off the website <laughs> if Biden loses, because you know, every prediction I'm making depends upon Biden winning. If it's going to be bad news for me, I'm gonna, I'll, I'll never get on television again. I think my, my kids might not speak to me again. Well, the history of this podcast is littered with inaccurate predictions. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, um, it's a hallmark of the show. You get everything wrong. Um, I, I just wonder if one of the things Trump might attack Biden on are the allegations from, from women that he's been inappropriate with them. And, you know, whatever Trump's own record in that field, we saw the way he treated Hillary Clinton with allegations about Bill Clinton. Are the accusations against Joe Biden, do you think, going to become louder during the campaign? You know, I, I I think they've seen that it failed, that that effort failed. So the, the vice president, Vice President Biden, is somebody who grabs and touches everybody. Uh, he's just a very physical guy. I'm not. I, he isn't now because of the COVID nineteen, and I think he may have to lose that. So I I told a story before about how he clamped onto my arm and was face to face with me, telling me about his grandchildren. That's just how he is. It's he's sort of an old style Paul in that way, um, and in some contexts, that's an inappropriate thing to do with women, particularly women you don't know especially well. Uh, it's he should not have done that, and he has said that, and he understood that he made people uncomfortable, and he understood that not only are the times different, but our understanding of what appropriate behavior is is much clearer now. And he's not he hasn't rationalized it, and he apologized for it, and he should have. I'm glad that he did. And that, again, shows me who he is as a man, the character of the man. Um, the allegation that he sexually assaulted someone has been very, 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 very thoroughly vetted 
by large numbers of news organizations. And there is a lot more doubt about it than there is solidity to it. Um, I'm obviously not in a position to say what's true and what's not true. And I'm a believer that if a woman makes an accusation, she should absolutely get the benefit of the doubt. And we should take it as true and then move on to the evidence and figure out whether it is in fact true. And, and there doesn't seem to be evidence that substantiates the accusation. There's some contemporaneous statements that she made, but I think that's sort of been litigated. And I don't think people will consider it to be an important part of the electoral debate. Um, I think the Trump folks will, in, in a, the spirit of desperation, throw everything they possibly can throw at Vice President Biden, and that will be one of the things they throw at him. Um, I don't think it will be successful. Um, and I, uh, frankly, if that is what we're talking about, in September and October, Donald Trump is going to lose and not lose in a close election, uh, because that would be a sign that they simply don't have anything effective to use against Vice President Biden. Because it is a concern, isn't it? I mean, you know, I, I obviously want Biden to win, and I believe that he's a morally superior individual to Donald Trump, and I've always been a fan of Joe Biden, but then you read these things, and in the culture that we're living in, and, and these things have arguably always been wrong. Um, I mean, I, I take the point that you said he's a tactful guy and, you know, I can sort of rationalise it that way. But you just think, I would never want to not take it seriously because they were against a person that I liked. You should always, you know, you would never want to be... Absolutely. To be ...a culture war and you go, well, I don't believe it because it's Joe Biden. You think, well, I have to take these things seriously. So I kind of have a slightly mixed feelings about him because it, it, in my, I can't help, in a way, for all I admire him, that it's left a kind of smell. It's left a, a kind of impression. And I, and I just wonder, you know, I would vote for him over Donald Trump. And I suppose that's the question in that, if, in that exam question, but just in general, the culture of our politics, I want, you know, you do worry about perhaps the culture that we were all outraged by the things Donald Trump says. There are people in parties that you and I both support that do things that aren't positive. And you just think, <laughs> I just hope we always take it seriously. And I would never want to think, you know, I'd overlooked it because the guy wasn't Donald Trump, if you know what I mean. No, I, so I completely share that view. And, um, and I don't want to diminish uh, any accusation against anyone, whether I agree with them or not. And let me just say, I, and, and this has been a hard thing personally for me. Um, I think a lot of Democrats in the United States are facing that reckoning or have faced that reckoning with Bill Clinton. Uh, because um, Bill Clinton was accused of terrible things, and uh, and we defended him um, to the detriment, in some cases, of women who were making accusations against him that may well have been true, and that should have been given the benefit of the doubt, and um, it turned into a partisan affair. Rather than a fair, rather than a debate over what is and isn't appropriate in our society, what is acceptable and unacceptable, what is what should cause you to be excluded from public office, and I think a lot of us, uh, it's a reckoning for a lot of us, 
Um, and shame on us for not reaching this reckoning earlier in our careers that um, the, the manner in which men treat women, because men in our society and your society are comparatively in significantly more powerful positions, and certainly men of power dealing with women, um, we, we have to rethink what that, what that is, because the way in which it's proceeded for certainly decades in the modern era and centuries is completely unacceptable. And women are not going to be able to advance as long as we fail to, to, to address it. Um, and it's caused me to, to wonder about my own behavior and how it's affected other people. I, I don't think that I, I'm quite confident that I haven't sexually assaulted anybody or sexually abused anybody or uh, even said demeaning things to somebody in a sexual way. But I don't know um, that what I've said to people um, in the past hasn't been, hasn't caused them to feel demeaned, hasn't weakened their position. Um, <clears throat> I know that in one incident uh, when I was working in the Labor Department that I did not intervene aggressively enough in support of a woman who felt that she was being bullied by another leader in the department, and I failed. And I, I actually teach about that in my, my class on leadership. That's, that is a weakness of mine, is that I did not intervene and I should have, and I was in a position to do it. And I was, and I, 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 I'm hopefully learning from that experience, but that doesn't mean that the hurt of that experience, it, it doesn't continue. So I'm, um, uh, I, I think it's not just a, a question about soul searching. It is a question about public policy and public morals. Uh, and, and that I think is what Vice President Biden faced up to um, when it came to his, the way in which he, he physically interacted with women. Um, and it's something that I need to encounter. And I think any man who's in a public space is in a public, is in a position to use whatever power they may have, um, to coerce or take advantage of, or just to do something that they think is friendly and caring, but is not received that way. We, we need to think differently about it. And our public policies, our workplace rules, our understanding of who is and isn't uh, valid as a candidate um, for public office or for a point of office, I think needs to be informed by a different understanding of those kinds of relationships. So just on the election then, I mean, do, do you think with the, with the virus, do you think the election will still go ahead as planned later this year? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, think, um, I think it would create a, a constitutional crisis that would end very badly for Donald Trump if there were any effort of any kind to delay the election. There is a federal law that requires that the election be held on the date in which it's held. The Constitution requires that the Electoral College meet at a particular time in advance of an inauguration that is required to occur, and not only at a particular day, but at a particular time on that particular day. And any effort to try to delay that I think will cause, I, I think it would be catastrophic for the country, but it would be catastrophic for Donald Trump. He, he has to allow the election to go forward. But what, I mean, let's not even fully contemplate this, but what if there's a second wave, then there's a third wave, something else happens, and you basically, what if we're in some form of lockdown? I mean, what would happen then? Would there have to be another form of voting? <clears throat> would it have to be done electronically? Would you know, people from the state have to go door to door and get people's votes? We should, well, we should, even 
even if the current level of uh, infection and the number of cases and the, and the rate of death is at the level it's at right now, every American should be able to vote by mail. There's no reason that Americans have to go to a, a particular place, stand in line with a bunch of other Americans, go into what looks like a urinal stall, touch equipment that other people have touched, right? Interact with people sitting at a desk in the middle of a pandemic, or frankly, ever. In the U.S., the evidence is overwhelming that when you have mail-in voting, a much, much, much larger percentage of people participate because it's a lot easier. They have more time to do it. You know, inexplicably, unjustifiably in the United States, our election day is on a work day that is not a national holiday. That's unjustifiable. You know, working people have to work, and they can't always work around the schedule when the polling places are open. So this, the easy solution is readily accessible mail-in voting for every voter everywhere in the United States. We would see a radical increase in the amount of participation, which would be a wonderful thing for democracy in our country. Um, and let me just say, what we would also see is a lot of the candidates that I would like to see win, I'll be honest, are going to win. Because the way in which some folks in the other party win elections is to suppress the vote, particularly to suppress the vote of people of color. We saw this sadly in Georgia in 2018 with the governor's election, where the guy who was the secretary of state and in charge of the elections suppressed the votes of African-American voters and got himself elected governor. There's no definition of moral or responsible or ethical that that fits under. Um, so. Let's bring in all of these people, the people who have to work the midnight shift, the people who have to work a 12 or 14 hour day in a hospital because that's what their job requires of them. And they're exhausted and they can't drag themselves to the polls. The, the long distance truck driver, the, you know, all of those people who just opt out because it's too hard for them to vote. Let's reduce the transaction costs, make it really easy, keep people safe. So. If, if the pandemic is, is the problem, postponing the election is not the solution, voting in a way that's safe is the solution, and we know what that is. It's the good old postal service. The postman I was talking about before, who I want to get a 10 or 15 pound raise for, but you're against it, Matt. I think that that guy should carry my vote in because I trust him or her to take, to take care of it for me. And so that's the way to solve that problem. It's easy. These are, you know, that's, we, we sometimes make problems complicated because it serves somebody's interest for them to be complicated. That one is incredibly easy. And finally, looking ahead to the election. Wait, are we done? We're done? You're getting rid of me already? Well, we, I, you know, we can keep talking. I, just, I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I've already kept you longer than I promised I would, so I felt bad. Um, I suppose, well, if you, if, you, if you could spare another couple of minutes, I suppose what, what I was going to ask you as well would be, we saw last time, and we saw it with Brexit here, um, highly sophisticated targeted adverts, the use of Facebook data and things like that by Trump and by, by the Leave campaign. Looking ahead to this election, I mean, Trump is surely going to do everything he can to win it. The potential is that this is the dirtiest election in history. Or do you think, actually, <laughs> given the experience of last time, the system can, can repel Russian interference or anything like that? Well, so I, um, 
I think that Trump will do absolutely anything he needs to do to win. I think that Russia will do whatever they can do to help him win. Uh, as long as it's not naked, I think that, uh, you know, uh, Putin is too smart, a former KGB officer, to do something that would be self-evident, even though, you know, we figured out what he did after the fact. Um, I think there are other state actors that would like to intervene in our election, Iran, perhaps China, perhaps North Korea, um, probably not Britain, but we'll, I don't know. You would know better than I. Um, so the question is, how will they intervene? You know, if they try to intervene through social media channels, I think that it's going to be sort of difficult for them to do that because, you know, it's very interesting. I was thinking about this uh, earlier today. In 2016, one of the ways in which the Russians tried to stir up really racial discord to the benefit of Trump in the country last time was to call, use Facebook pages, create Facebook pages that were Black Lives Matter, appeared to be Black Lives Matter Facebook pages, and then to call protests, right, and to make people so upset that they would come out and march. And what are they going to do now? People are in the streets marching in support of Black Lives Matter literally right now. What is Russia going to do? A White Lives Matter rally? A Russian Lives Matter rally? You know, Borscht matters? What are they going to do? So I think that there's, first of all, we are much more aware of it now. Some of the social media platforms are, I think, behaving quite responsibly, trying to behave responsibly, and taking down content or flagging content that they think is uh, is irresponsible or wrong or is posted by foreign actors. They're also taking down accounts that are just sort of dummy accounts. They've done that with a bunch of Chinese accounts. They've done that with a bunch of Russian accounts and Iranian accounts. Um, Really, the, maybe the most disgraceful act that we've seen in this election hasn't yet come from the Trump folks. It comes from Mark Zuckerberg, the the czar of, and I use that word advisedly, the czar of Facebook, who refuses to flag false content, you know, the kind of content that Russia was posting in 2016 to stir discord and to benefit Donald Trump. He can. Twitter is doing it. Others are doing it. But Zuckerberg, really only in service of his own economic interests, is refusing to do it. So I think that he will go down in disgrace as one of the people who facilitated the Brexit campaign uh, and a lot of dishonesty in that campaign, some of it generated by foreign actors, uh, because you know Britain, Russia benefits just as much from discord in Britain as it does from discord in the United States. Um, and uh, allowing Russian interference and Chinese interference and other kinds of interference in the American election through the Facebook platform. And, and let me say, Facebook also owns Instagram, it owns WhatsApp, it owns other uh, 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 public-facing apps as well. And, um, you know, I, I don't want to let the bad actors off the hook, but the people who enable the bad actors should be called out as well, and Zuckerberg is absolutely in that category. So if you had to put $50 on the outcome of the election, who do you think wins and how much by? I'm going to put $50 on my home congressman who's definitely going to be reelected, and I would probably get no odds at all on that. Um, that's not the answer you're looking for. Were you looking for <laughs> a different election? 
<laughs> yes, I, the presidential election, please. The presidential election. If I, I would put, um, I'd put fifty dollars on Joe Biden being elected. Um, I think that he'll win by. If he does win, it'll be probably nationally something in the vicinity of five points, maybe a little bit less. It'll be you know Hillary Clinton won nationally by about three percent, and that was not enough to get her over the barrier in the uh, over the um, over the transom in the swing states. So I think it would probably have to be five or more. Um, I, you know, I the electoral college is really what matters. I think that Biden will, uh, you know, be certainly be over two seventy, but he won't be over three thirty. Um, maybe a little bit south of that three three hundred five, three ten, something in that vicinity. I'm as you can see, I'm not expecting the current polling to hold. I think it's going to narrow significantly. It always does narrow. Um, and you know, Donald Trump is sitting on a huge pot of money. Um, the question is, can he spend it in a meaningful way? Jeb Bush in 2016 was sitting on a big pot of money too. That didn't work out so well for him. No, and so was Michael Bloomberg, and it didn't work out too well for him. Right, either. right, exactly right. Um, well, I'm gonna, I'm off to the bookies to put uh, 50 quid, which is roughly the same as 50 dollars these days, on uh, on 305 electoral college votes for Joe Biden. Well, I, uh, I, I'm not advising that. Let me just say, I'm not, uh, don't, uh, I'd rather that you put that money into a delicious uh, fish and chips meal for you and me next time we're, I'm in London. It would be a pleasure to, to, to see you when you're over here. Seth, thank you so much for coming on. This has been superb. Well, there you go, Seth Harris. What a great voice and so many brilliant stories. Um, from inside the Obama administration and the insights into Barack Obama and Joe Biden. But I love the stuff about the transition team. I thought that was really... Because it is different here. You have a shadow cabinet that you get used to as a public, that they're on display often for an entire parliament, at least, um, depending on the position. So you get used to seeing who the government-in-waiting is. But obviously in America, it's completely different. Um, so just, I would love to see, I, I mean, maybe you know this, maybe there's been a film made about transition teams, but that idea of like this new team having to be assembled, then work with the outgoing team while they're still there. That would make a great Netflix series. If it already exists, let me know because I'd love to watch it. And um, thank you for downloading this. I'm sorry this podcast is a little bit late. Um, I had some technical difficulties, which means... My laptop is full. I don't know if you have this with your laptop where it says the disk space is full. You have to delete stuff. So I've had to go on a, um, over the last two days, deleting a load of, basically deciding what to keep or not on my laptop. It was like when you move house, but with your computer, you just have to chuck out stuff that maybe two months ago I would have kept. So I hope I've delete, I haven't deleted anything important, but um, there you are. That's why it's slightly late this week. My apologies. I've got some great guests lined up in the coming weeks, and um, I'm very excited about those. I hope you keep him well, um, because, you know, I, I think we're all reaching a stage where some people are feeling impatient, but the virus is still out there, so please be safe. Just remind yourself of that. But also, in this heat, my word. Um, and apologies to listeners in parts of the UK and other uh, elsewhere that aren't experiencing a heat wave. But it's really hot. So um, take water with you wherever you go and stay in the shade. I'll see you next week. Ta-ra.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.